previously on Love Like Hell. I think I knew that I needed to tell you that I had been living a double life. I had been having an affair. Couldn't look you in the eyes. The person sitting in front of you is a stranger. Well, there's no easy way to understand the mystery at this point of who killed the marriage. We could say there was foreshadowing and we should have known. The truth is, you don't see what you don't want to. The single largest predictor of how we show up in relationship, it's our family history. I felt so much shame. And the story that I had around it was there was something wrong with me or this wouldn't have happened. There's two sides to a story. What's my responsibility? What is the other person's responsibility? And oftentimes, we don't hear from all parties involved. I am not a proponent for staying at all costs. You have to know what works for you and what you can invest in. What is yours to carry and what is not. You have to have two people willing to change. You may have been unhappy, maybe I was unhappy, but there's so much more to the story. And when we take something at a base level, we become so shallow in understanding how relationships work. So. I think we had two people in a relationship with shadows and we couldn't see them and we couldn't be honest and we didn't even know what we needed. I'm Christy Bourne. And I'm Rainier Wild. Together, we're investigating the mysteries of love and relating. We get gritty and dig deep into why love is the tie that binds us together. And also drives us to our knees. This is our story. This is your story. This is Love Like Hell. I take a number at the counter and put my name in. And I sit with lots of different people in a waiting room. I'm looking around. I have two of our kids with me. One's three, one's five. And I'm sitting there alone, waiting for my name to be called. And not really wanting my name to be called because I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that I'm sitting in a welfare office looking for help. I become more embarrassed when I sit across from a person asking me questions. How long do you expect to be on state assistance? What kind of income do you collectively have? Have you ever had resources before? I feel ashamed that this is the place that I'm finding myself in and also knowing I need help. I have to take care of my family. I have to feed the mouths that are around the table in my home. So I answer the questions as best as I can. Yes. There's been a job that is no longer there. No, we haven't had help before. I'm not sure how long we will need assistance. Then my question, how soon can this start? How quickly can we get help? The thing is, 
I'm trying to keep it together. This is the first step that I know how to do. Feed the people I'm responsible for. Keep a roof over our head. Make one decision and then the next. I never thought I would be here. I have my graduate degree. I have education underneath my belt. These are the people that I help. I am not one of them. I say thank you. And I leave just as embarrassed as I entered. Asking questions. Shuffling with everybody else. Praying to God. This won't last forever. It doesn't matter who you are in that scenario. It doesn't matter if you're the person who was cheated on or if you're the person who did the cheating. Your first job in a crisis is to find stability. And in a way, it comes at the cost of the erosion of everything you thought was secure before. So here you are, a person who has tremendous means, in a sense, who has been raised in a certain way to think of these particular resources uh, through a particular lens. And here you are finding yourself in desperate need. What was that like? That situation was very lonely and very shameful. And because there was a bit of, um, I'm going to say like a power imbalance, like you were doing the majority of the work and I was working very part-time. And so when we experienced a loss in that situation, there was a crisis. So we had to step in to make things work. I never thought that would be the place where I'd be standing because part of my job is to help people find resources. Mm. And I'm realizing we don't even have resources for ourselves. And there's such a stigma of using uh, state assistance or federal assistance. There's, there's such a stigma of you're not able to take care of yourself, or at least that's the way I was raised. So entering into that, like I couldn't even tell anyone that that's what I was needing because I couldn't take care of myself or we couldn't take care of ourselves. So there was a sense of embarrassment and like having your name called and getting in line with, you know, folks who were really quite used to that. This for me was I wanted to be on the other side helping. And this time I was asking for help. Yeah, a profound leveling experience. You know, I, I remember being at home during that time. Um, and the, the blanket of shame was pretty heavy. Of course, there was the fallout of the affair. There was a sense of a loss of reputation. There was a sense of a loss of, of meaning and um, my own purpose during that time. But just imagining you on this long walk, doing what it takes to feed the family. I was extraordinarily convicted with this sense of a reversal that up to this point, I had been the primary person specializing in providing. And 
now suddenly I was inept. I was incapable because of my own actions. And you were doing this thing that was so difficult and so challenging. Yeah, that minute and that moment trying to figure out what are our next steps. And we both had so much shame in that experience. And I think we're both alone in that experience. Like, I didn't know what it was like for you and you didn't know what it was like for me. It was putting one step in front of the other. I don't think this was months after that. I think it was shortly after yeah. that experience. We had to put things into action right away. Mm. So, you know, in that, I didn't know what it was like for you. Yeah. And I felt really lonely. And I actually felt pretty angry that I was having to go do that and have that experience. It just... All of it was really upsetting to me. Uh, of course. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm putting myself in your shoes in that moment. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I, I can't imagine the strength and the, the resiliency it took to, to do that, being in the position that you were in. That's not to say that accessing those kind of resources is, is remotely a shameful or wrong thing. It's just saying that these were places you never imagined being. And I think that that is the key there. When a, when a crisis happens in a relationship, when you experience a loss, any kind of loss, when there's a reversal that dramatic, you suddenly occupy a space of now doing things you never thought you were going to do, having conversations you never expected having. And there is a real, almost a disrealization that happens where things become disreal very fast, you know, where, and I even remember thinking this, like, is this even real? Is this, this can't be happening. Did you ever have that, that thought during those moments? Is this my life and how did I get here kind of moment? Is, is that what you're talking about? In no, some ways? It, 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 it wasn't even like, how did I get here? I, I couldn't even access that thought. There was no a sense of like causes. I just was stuck in a moment I could not believe was actually even happening. There were moments where I thought, I'm going to wake up. D did you ever have that? I don't think I had that. That wasn't my experience. My experience probably was more like what I said earlier. I was like, how did I get here? And what is this? And how can I get out of this? Hmm. You mentioned anger. And I think that's a, a really interesting aspect, of course, because all these emotions are coming up, right? For you, for me, we're both dealing with a complex cocktail of emotions, a lot of distress, high distress. But you mentioned something that was really, really important. You said putting one foot in front of the other, which is really all about riveting yourself to the present moment. That's a skill right? There is enough pain in the present moment to not go hunting for more suffering in the past or the future. And I think it was really easy to get lost in those places. And unless we had almost a checklist to work through, right? I've got to do this and then I've got to do this and then I've got to do this. And all I can do is just take the next step. If there wasn't that kind of list, I think it was a bit of crazy making that would happen. One of the things that we talk about is authenticity, transformation, truth-telling, this idea of radical acceptance in life and where to find those places and how to be part 
of a community. I think it's so difficult today, especially as men, to have environments where you can deepen into your sense of self. To truly have that kind of experience like we talk about uh, in this show of authenticity over performance. And that's why I designed The Rope. The Rope is a men's leadership development training. And it's an eight-week experience for 10 to 15 individuals, men from all over the world, who are profoundly committed to having new possibilities in their life. And what I find happens over and over and over is that the men who participate in the rope are transformed. And that's one of the reasons why I love doing it, because it provides these skills that we're talking about to men to take on leadership in their life. And it's so vital. It's good for anyone. We're not just talking about being in a relationship with somebody. This is finding the self, taking off the layers and locating who you are in the world. This is the work that you do with those guys and you cut through the bullshit. We have been to places, we have learned and you're allowing men to locate the self that's hidden underneath the facade. This is something that uh, I've been able to offer a number of times in the last several years. And each time afterwards, a man will approach me or we'll do work with, with individuals who have come through it. And there's a real difference. You can tell their life is marked. And if they show up in the rope, if they give of themselves, if they dive uh, with both feet, the shift is absolutely incredible. So I want to invite men into this experience. If you are a man whose back is against the wall, or if you're a man who's longing to discover his own edge, to live into identity, shadow, and purpose, this is for you. And if you're a woman who knows a man who could benefit from this, direct him this way. We've worked with couples who the spouse, the partner has said, our relationship has changed because of the rope and the responsibility that their partner now takes. That's absolutely incredible. March 29, it begins, it's eight weeks. Every Tuesday night, we gather digitally on Zoom for two hours, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And during that eight weeks, it fills your world. Again, men from all over the world, up against a lot of different situations, holding on to different things in their life, but all coming together around the realities of developing new possibilities and bringing great change to their experiences. I wanna invite you. You can access that through the link in my bio, on Instagram, go to it. There's a wait list, sign up. There's only a few spots left. I want you to be one of them. All right, consider it. Thanks so much. In those situations, it was almost like, um, you know, hierarchy of needs. I can't make any big decisions right now. I need to have stability. So I need to have a roof over my head. I need to have food in our stomachs. I need to have warmth. Like I need to be able, before I make any decisions, before collectively we make any big decisions, to have stability, to have our legs under us. Um, 
And so not kind of functioning out of survival mode, um, this kind of emotional mind, but kind of like centering ourselves so we could make decisions for steps forward. Mm-hmm. Part of that was our basic needs. Yeah. I remember a mentor um, at the time. <laughs> it's funny calling him a mentor because I think he was one of the people who stopped talking to me shortly after this situation. A lot of people do. You know, it's like, boy, you lose people real fast when your back's against the wall like this. But before he disappeared, uh, this particular gentleman said something that really stuck with me. He said, your job is not to figure out what's next. Your job is not to figure out what's next. It's to figure out how you can earn a paycheck. It's to figure out how you can position yourself to figure out what's next. And I think that that's a really important thing, right? We, we get real, real um, introspective really fast and we jump about 30 steps ahead. Like, you know, um, what am I going to do with the kids? What about that mortgage? What about the, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of different things, you know, um, what am, what, what am I going to tell my parents? What am I, all these kind of different things. I think you just need to focus much more on brass tacks in the immediate moment. That's how you get through a crisis. Yeah. In that moment, what we said before, one foot in front of the other, the next best thing. Mm. And so that's what we did. We didn't talk about it for quite some time after because we put our head down and made something happen so we could get the ground underneath of us. It's interesting because I'm kind of thinking about um, how the sight of a full cupboard during that time was a great consolation to us both (laughs) that our world was deteriorating in many, many ways, but we would walk past our pantry and the pantry would be full. And I remember this feeling, I don't know if you remember the same, but I remember this feeling of like, there was an all rightness if the pantry was full, if it was stocked with tomatoes, you know, if there was, if there was enough fruit snacks for the kids. There was this sense like, okay, it's, it's going to be okay. Yeah. And wanting at least our kids to feel a, a sense of okayness, even if you and I weren't okay, even if you and I hadn't figured it out yet, we knew that we were taking care of them. And for me, that was a really big deal that no matter what happened between mom and dad, that they were taken care of. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point because I think one of the things, you know, you've got a lot of plates in the air as a responsible adult. And within all of that, you've got to make some decisions. You can't let all those plates fall to the floor. There is a temptation to do that. There's a temptation to kind of just let everything go to hell. But what you're talking about is protecting Um, and providing for the other aspects of your life so that there's at least some sense of preservation that's happening. Yeah, there's such a knee-jerk reaction in in these places. I put myself back into those early stages of hearing the news and getting information and wondering, what am I going to do? And where am I going to go? And what is this going to look like? 
all you have is questions. And if you were to hop on each one of those and solve them or, you know, make big dramatic moves, it would be really chaotic. Now, I'm not saying what everybody should do, but in this crisis phase, slowing down so you can make good decisions is really important. So you can think through, how is this going to impact everyone? Finding that is so vital. So at the onset, of course, you have a million questions. Slowing down helps you, right? Like, so you're not feeling frantic. You know, I, I, I can't help but wonder if part of that is almost making a promise to yourself, like no big decisions um, for the time being. Like I'm going to shelf big decisions right now. Instead, I'm going to get through the present moment. You know, in a situation like this, there's not a lot you can do to make it better, right? It, it, it's playing out as, as it will play out. Not a lot you can do in the immediate that is going to immediately make it better. There's a hell of a lot you can do to make it worse. Mm, that's a really good point. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that you uh, really need to do is almost think of like you're, you're driving on ice. You're like an automobile that's driving on ice. You can't turn the wheel fast. You can't do any sudden knee-jerk movements. You kind of have to be cool as a cucumber in that. Yeah, but everything you see, think about this, everything that you see on TV and on social media and things like that, it's not saying slow down. It's saying get the keys to the car and get the heck out of Dodge and make the big decision. Mm. Everything seems so dramatic and big. And maybe that works for some. And it adds more chaos to the mix. Yeah. And I'm not talking about if you're not safe, like safety first. Absolutely. Safety first. But in terms of finding the ground you walk on so you can make wise-minded decisions, now that's something completely different. Yeah. You actually just made a, a really great delineation. I think sometimes people hearing like, for instance, this particular story, um, they may, you know, immediately kind of think, well, God, you know, again, uh, if this incredibly toxic situation can find some kind of resolution, maybe I, I can too. And we've said this before, like, well, yes, a lot of things are possible. I would say that if the situation where there is a clear and present lack of safety, or if there is a, a clear and present danger that's occurring, you really do need to make some big decisions very, very fast, right? And you need help. Um, so these are things that we've talked about in the past, but I think it's important to, to reemphasize here um, because while you do kind of want to slow things down and you do want to skate on ice, so to speak, urge surf in a way, you also have to be mindful of making the right decisions at the right time. You really do. Yeah. What you and I are not talking about is staying in situations that are unhealthy, that are unsafe, and that not all relationships can hold every space. We're talking about our relationship. Yeah. And so we want to make that really clear in this conversation that slowing down, finding stability, making wise-minded choices in our relationship, what we thought was possible, that was of utmost importance. And one of those steps was asking for help, 
from resources outside of us. We needed food. We needed to make sure we had shelter. And so we stepped into that. Yeah. The, the key here, whether I look back at our story or so many of the other ones that we've encountered both before and since, is that you really have to have those two willing parties who are going all the way. When you have that, when you have people who are fully leaning forward, leaning in, both doing um, their thing, a lot is possible. Um, I think the last time we were talking about this, you know, you said, you know, it's, it's two people doing 100% each. That's 200%, you know, and I love that. And I think that that really is the case here. Um, what you're doing is you're stabilizing the relationship, but you're also actively engaging. And that's so vital. You're actively engaging what matters, what's effective, what gets you through the moment without making it worse. Ultimately, those things contribute to, uh, to improving your odds greatly that you're going to make it through. Each one takes their turn around the room. There's maybe 30 of them. This takes forever. Thank God it started at 6 a.m. 6 a.m. on a Saturday, though. But we would be here all day if it didn't start so goddamn early. Why am I here? Here I am. And each one, each one taking their turn and speaking their truth. Hi, my name is Bob. I'm a sex addict. And I'm here because I've been looking at pornography since I was 12 years old. And eventually, I lost a marriage over it. But that didn't stop me from doing it. Hi, my name is Ralph, and I've had 37 affairs. 37? My God, what's wrong with this guy? Hey, my name is George, and uh, I masturbate in public. Oh my God, weirdo. Hey, my name, on and on and on it goes. And some of them are obscene. Some of them I feel so creeped out by, like, how can I even sit in the same room as this guy? And some of them sound just like my story. They go around the room, all of them, in turn, one after the other, until they come to me. I take a deep breath. Oh, hey, um... Yeah, my name is Rainier. Um, <laughs> I'm a journalist. Um, I'm uh, I'm doing a story on sex addicts. So, thanks guys for sharing. Uh, that's real great. Uh, really appreciate your vulnerability. I got a big laugh. Everybody thought that was funny as hell, and I moved on. The first time I was there, I didn't say anything about my story. I was not remotely ready to talk about how I had ended up in this place. But I'll tell you what I was. 
I was blown away at how honest these men were. I had never heard Ben be that honest. <laughs> years of being a spiritual director, years of being a therapist. I always got the sense that people weren't actually being that honest with me. To a point. But they were kind of feeding me information. They were playing good little clients. And I was playing nice little therapist. Nobody was playing nice here. Nobody was pretending anymore. They were saying the truth. And then the facilitator said this. He said, this is an environment where we value authenticity over performance. Your whole life you've been taught to play a part. But here, you drop the roles and you start to be who you are. Oof. I couldn't believe it. I can't say that I felt safe. I can't say that sitting in this space feels, well, like I can say anything yet. But I know I will. I know this is exactly the kind of place where I can begin to share the parts of myself that I've kept hidden for so long. I was so thankful when you decided to go to that group. That was a big step in us moving forward. That you would get up every Saturday morning at six. Earlier than six, let's just be honest. Yeah, yeah. Before, before six, because you had to drive across town to get there. And that was the beginning of me really seeing you take responsibility and try something new on. I didn't know what those meetings consisted of. I did know the person in charge of it and I'd had an idea. I wasn't privy to those conversations. I let that be your space. And I think that there was part of me that thought, well, you should go to that and you should do it because you've, you've done this thing. So there was a still anger coming from me. And at the same time, relief that you were taking it serious. And I really needed you to take it serious. I had to see that there was opportunity for change. That was really important to me. Yeah. And in, I'm going to say something. I knew it was important to you, but that's not why I was going. I was going because I knew I needed a change. I knew that the way I had been thinking, the way I had been conducting myself, the way I had been existing in the world had gotten me here. And if I didn't try something else, I was going to keep on coming back to the same place over and over and over. And whatever this was, it was different than what I had done before. And I knew that I needed a change. I think that's really important because I think a lot of times people are like preserve the relationship, you know, especially when they're in the shoes of the person who cheated, right? Um, hey, how can I make this up, baby? What can I do to fix this? And it's like there's just a lot of suppression that begins to happen at that point. You're just cutting away, you're hiding, you're kind of putting things, you know, down so that you can keep the relationship together. That's, by the way, how you ended up in this place in the first 
position, right? You suppressed. <laughs> um, and so we kind of just keep on doing that. I was deeply committed to not running that play anymore. Yeah. It took me a lot longer to start working on my personal stuff than it did for you. And I think because it was in the form of you did this thing to our agreements and to our relationship. So you jumped into um, looking at your stuff a lot sooner than I did. So my growth, I think, came a lot later because I was pointing fingers at you and saying, I need you to fix this. I need you to take it serious. I probably wasn't that straightforward. Uh, maybe I was. But that's really how I felt. And I remember this one time you said, I can't exactly remember, but it kind of made me mad at the time was, well, I'm going to be okay at the end of this or oh, something. Yeah. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> like, you're good. You're going to take care of this. But I think that you were finding a solidness inside of yourself. And I still, in, in that way, was pointing a finger. Yeah. And I'm hesitant to say this, but I think it's such a good point that you're making. That almost any time that we're in that posture of pointing the finger or almost any time, you know, we're saying, well, you better man up or you better, if, if he was just the kind of partner who would come through for me, or if he would just, while that may be true, it's a tremendous way of avoiding or deflecting your own work. Yeah. This is like a, what do you call it? Tight rope, tight wire kind of thing where you're balancing a lot of different things. Uh, one is uh, relational integrity. Mm -hmm. Like we both had to invest you had to invest, I had to invest, but we also had to do our own work. And what you're talking about right now is you're taking steps to join this group, to be authentic for the first time, to be honest in a way and be seen uh, with something completely different. And I saw that. And for me, that was an important piece of our, the integrity of our relationship. But for you, it was important in your individual work. Yeah, because honestly, I didn't know if you were going to leave me or not, right? I knew that I couldn't change for you, although I was certainly gratified that you were seeing those changes and, and that it was motivating you to stay. I certainly was. Um, I just knew that couldn't be what propelled me through that place. I think uh, an, another aspect that's really important um, is... I want to say I wasn't sold on the idea of this kind of group. You know, both you and I come from classical uh, clinical psychotherapeutic training. Sexual addiction is not in the DSM. You know, both of us have actually taught diagnosis. You know, this is not something that, that we actually, you know, fundamentally or philosophically necessarily agreed with up to that point. I had a lot of intellectual hangups about this kind of group. I was unsure of its efficacy. I am someone who has facilitated many groups in my lifetime. I'm a, a, a great facilitator. I'm someone who's been with other men, a leader of other men. And I've got to tell you, one of the easiest ways of wiggling out of your own work is 
it not being your ideal. Mm. And so I, I think I look back on that. One of the things I'm so aware of is I was able to get past that hurdle of, well, this might not be ideal, or you might not agree with it all the way, or, or they might not do it like you would. And truly surrender to that process and say, there's a lot of things I don't know. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Yeah, and I think that group also posed this beautiful place of honesty around sex. So even if you didn't necessarily agree with the efficacy of the group, sitting with people talking honestly about sex is so refreshing because it's so cloistered, it's so shameful, it's taboo, it's all of the things. And you're sitting in a place where people aren't doing that around topics that people don't talk about. So how amazing for the first time to, you know, take some of those blinders off. Yeah, you know, it really was a beautiful gift. It wasn't just about sex, although it, that that certainly was um, a fundamental reason why we were all in hot water. I remember one of the guys that actually said, well, the reason I'm here is I got caught. Um, and that was kind of a common common joke. I didn't exactly feel that same way, but but... You know, what I was very clear on was the reason I was there was because I had failed to keep my agreements relentlessly to myself, to you, to others across the years. And what I wanted to address desperately was a new way of being that enabled me to keep those agreements. So that was what I was profoundly committed to. And I understood that the first thing that was necessary was being authentic. If I didn't start there, then nothing was going to be possible. There's kind of a funny pecking order in, um, in groups like that. I think, you know, anytime you're dealing with recovery of any kind, you're having people come in with lots of different starting places. Um, you know, and this is very true in sexual addiction environments. Because what may constitute infidelity or cheating or a problem for one person might look very, very low level or not even like infidelity. I remember, you know, one person, again, 37 affairs, and you're just thinking, holy shit, buddy, you're going to need more than a, a group to get you through this. But then you have another guy who's like, well, you know, I, I danced with a person one time. And, uh, and you're like, well, did you sleep with her afterwards? Well, no, but, you know, I thought about it a couple of times. Well, why are you here? Well, because Justine, she gets really upset when, you know, it's like, okay, so I'm somewhere on this pecking order. But what you eventually begin to realize in relationship to sex is we have a lot of um, different ways of defining what monogamy is and a lot of different ways of defining what infidelity is. And those were some of the first places I began to, to think about that in relationship to sex. And again, what I came up with very unequivocally is um, the issue that finds me here is my inability to keep agreements, whatever those agreements are. Yeah, that was a really refreshing topic when you brought that up, uh, that that was the thing that you had found was the inability to keep agreements, whether that was showing up on time or with friends or saying what you were doing was what you were doing. There was always a way to have the truth kind of be pushed to the side. And I thought that was such a great revelation because we all do it in different ways, but it had become so automatic for you that you didn't see it. Mm. 
Oh, yeah. And so seeing that and seeing all the different ways that it played out, really you felt like you had lost your integrity. Mm-hmm. That that self was lost because, you know, you could table it. Right. And in a real way, there was a, a, a sense that had I ever had a congruent self, right? Because in, in all of these different situations, you know, I'd say one thing, but mean something else. You know, I'd say, I love you, but really what I meant was, do you love me? Or I do the dishes, but, but really it wasn't about doing the dishes. It was about trying to get sex from you. Or there was all these different ways of lying. Mm. And I would categorize those as lying today. I would understand that in a very clear way that, that I was creating a series of transactional experiences that were diminishing my sense of self and decreasing my ability to relate. And I think that's very, very common in relationships. It's not just in a room of sex addicts. Eventually I realized, well, that's all of us. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here thinking about how incredibly far we've come and how much we've grown as you're talking about all the different ways that, that we lie. And we're all susceptible to that. And for me personally, it's been lying by like... um, right? Like not saying the thoughts that I'm having or um, dismissing them or not speaking up or not sharing. I mean, like there are so many different ways that we don't show up in truth. And I'm kind of feeling proud as you're talking like, oh (laughs) man, that was a different world. And we both were living in our own level of deception. Yeah. And the gift of that particular group and groups like that, whether they're 12-step programs or recovery programs, or honestly, at least for men, a circle of men or a circle of women, people who are willing to commit, if you are relentless, ruthless in your approach to honesty, the gift is you can be seen as you are. Freedom. Freedom. Mm. Because the other side of truth is freedom. And so that was really the first taste that I began to have. And I remember there was a moment when I I had actually, um, I don't exactly remember what had happened, but I remember that I had compromised my agreements and I wasn't ready to tell you yet. In fact, normally I would not tell anybody. And I got to the Saturday group and I'm sitting on it and I'm sitting on it. I'm hearing man after man go around the room with his check-in and he's saying, you know, what's happening in his life and they're being ruthlessly honest and it gets to me and I have the opportunity to either lie or tell the truth. And I told the truth. And I remember feeling like that moment was the biggest win because it wasn't about whether I had done that thing or not. Oh, that could get dealt with. It was, was I honest? Was I authentic? Did I actually speak what was happening? Did I live in reality? It was a huge moment for me. Mm. I think about how much lying, deceiving ourselves, imprisons us. We don't even know what's on the other side of that because we've spent so much time deceiving ourselves and others that we can't even imagine what it would be like to, to tell the truth. and. Wow, what was that like for you? Mm, Yeah, we live in prisons of our own making. Mm. The lies that we create to protect ourselves, but then prevent us from actually living free. It's been a while since we've stepped foot in a church. We used to have our own. 
people would come to our house. It was always full of people and food and activity. But it's been a while. And we're desperate. And you tell me you know of someone, a pastor, a pastor in our area who has gone through something like we have. And he's standing on his own two feet now. And he's been honest about it. And you think it can really help us. At this point, that is so terrifying to me to walk into a strange place and to tell someone or reach out and say, this is what's happened. But we do it. We haul all four of our kids across town to enter into a building full of strangers and hoping to ask for help. I can barely walk My feet and my legs are like jello. I can barely swallow. I do not want to be there. People see my shame. And yet one foot in front of the other. I don't even think that I can contain tears at this point. I think they just roll down my face. So we enter. There we are. You and me, our four kids, in the back of this church. It's not a place I thought I would be again. Everything is unfamiliar here. The people. The way of being together. Yet again, I... I don't even know if I agree, if I believe. I'm not sure it matters. I'm desperate. I'm desperate for a change, for something, for anything. And then the sermon starts, the speech. He's handsome well-spoken, has an easy manner. He begins to tell stories and narratives and string together sacred texts, one on top of the other, and my mind is other places I tune out until he gets to a story that is all too familiar to me. I always love the story of Beauty and the Beast. You always told me I look like Belle. And I look like the beast. He starts talking about it. About this fairy tale. About this story. Of a prince. A prince whose heart was darkness. And he made choices that put his world in a tailspin. A curse. He became a beast. His castle became a dungeon. His servants became objects. And he was alone. And there was no love in his heart. And everything was darkness. And there's a girl 
in the forest. And there's a crisis. She's unsafe. And he saves her. Brings her back to his castle. But it's dark. And it's empty. And she's scared. She doesn't recognize her captive. He seems as though he cares. But there's darkness all around him. And slowly, her curiosity, her inquisitiveness, her gentle way of being in the world, her kindness, begins to disrobe his beastliness. They dance. It's all too precious. And it builds to a moment. A moment where beauty and the beast are standing in front of one another. And she kisses him. And when she does, she reaches up with a tender hand, touching the face that no one would, that most were scared of. And there's something about that kiss. There's something about that love because it transforms him. All of the beast of him falls away. And he's a human underneath, a heart of flesh. See, it was an inability to love, a selfishness that plunged his whole world into darkness, his whole household. But it was love that transformed it all. And I'm hearing this speaker tell the story about love, about a kiss that transforms a life. Just like a heart of selfishness transformed it in the first place. And all I can hear is my story. All I can hear is us and your beauty and I'm the beast. And I am just a flood of tears sitting there knowing this moment is right. And I get up at the end of that service and I walk to a perfect stranger and I say, excuse me. My wife, she's sitting right over there. Do you see her? And my kids, they're over there. Well, we're in a bit of a crisis. The message you spoke this morning was our story. And we need help. It's amazing how a simple story like that in an unfamiliar place can wreck your world. And then you and I are up at the front talking to the man who had just delivered this oration in trusting the deepest truths of our life, the deepest secrets that we had to give to perfect strangers in that moment. They're up at the front. 
this little idea that love, selfless love, could change you suddenly gave hope. Now, let's be clear. You and I were not both in the front. You were in the front. You went to talk to him. Mm. That's an important difference for me because I felt like you took initiative. I felt that I couldn't even stand on my own two legs at that time. Like if I put myself in that place, my legs are wobbly. And you, to me, charged forward. And maybe you felt just as wobbly and just as weak. But you did that. Mm. You did that for us. I felt really, really proud of that. You know, as much as we talk about there's only so many things you can do in a crisis, uh, you can't readily improve the moment. Um, there are things you can do. And this is part of that radical acceptance because this was another bit of unfolding that story of this is what is happening to us. But it also rooted us in radical hope, not the kind of hope that is brought about by sort of whimsical um, fantasy of, well, we'll get through this or, oh, he'll change or, um, you know, he didn't really mean it after all, or this was a big mistake or nothing like that. It was rooted and grounded in authenticity. And I think on both our parts, having the willingness to take the steps forward to address what is. Yeah. It took courage to walk into that building on its own merit, to stay through the whole thing, then to walk up and ask for help, then to stay, to receive it, accepting that this is the place that we're at and entering into something that we've never done before. I didn't even want to be seen. And you were saying, see us. I knew that it mattered to you because you said, see us. This is where we're at. Mm. And I'm so grateful for those places that exist. Again, they, they might not have it all right. They might not have it all figured out. They might not have it completely dialed in. They might disagree with them on the finer points. They might not do it how you would, but that they exist. People who have been through it. People who are willing to open their arms. People who are willing to help tell a new story. I just think that matters so much. As you begin to piece together what is, And then what will be. And every love story is different. Our love story was different than theirs. We can't replicate them. But it gave love hope again, no matter what form it took. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Love Like Hell. We appreciate your support so much. Listen, would you do us a small favor? If you love the show, will you leave a fabulous five-star review? And don't forget to share this with all your friends. Okay. Well, until next week, I'm Rainier. And I'm Christy. Live like mad and love, love like, like hell. Love like hell. That, that was my signature. Oh. Line. <laughs>